Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me is my co-host, Cameron. Hey. Hi, Cameron. You're looking awful human today. I'm real human today. Feeling human. Cool. Great. Mm -hmm. All now, humans uh, here. Oh, I, I've, I've been having these dreams, Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, this is going to sound a little bit embarrassing. I don't know if I want to say it on the show, but, uh, I've been dreaming that I've been transforming, mm -hmm. uh, my, my hair getting long, mm -hmm. uh, my skin getting leathery, mm -hmm. uh, my pants getting cuffed. Mm. Yeah. I'm getting, I'm developing like belt buckles. Oh my and, god! Uh, like metal snaps all along my uh, torso. My hair is whipping back uh, in a pompadour style that I feel very uncomfortable about. Oh my god! Sounds like you're you're yeah. becoming some sort of wear Mick Jagger. Yep, yep. That's what I'm afraid of. I'm you know I didn't want to say it, but that's exactly the thing I was worried about. But anyway, you know. <laughs> Well, how about this? Uh, you know, if I if if uh, some sort of uh, Mick Jagger crashes through the bay window of your uh, stately ranch home uh, at some point, uh, I'm going to need you to uh, put a silver bullet right between the eyes. Mm -hmm. And whatever happens after that Mick Jagger transforms back into its original form, I don't want you to feel bad. Okay? <laughs> it needed to happen. You know, I sometimes fate is fate. <laughs> Oh, and only one darling little boy has the gumption to see it through. <laughs> Is that you? Wait, are you now referring to yourself as a darling little boy in third person? Uh, I I believe that the listener base uh, independently refers to me as their darling little boy. I think whenever I'm whenever I'm looking around, I'm like, what are people saying about just King things this month when the new episode mm -hmm. comes out? Mm -hmm. Everyone, all the tweets just scrolling across my screen being like, oh, it's my darling boy, Michael. Uh, go ahead. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts and you haven't done it already, if you have done it already, thank you. But if you haven't done it already, leave us a five star review over on <laughs> Apple Podcasts and mention our darling little boy, Michael, and how great of a job he's doing over here. Oh, goodness. Uh, today we're talking about Cycle of the Werewolf. Yep. 1983, uh, the... <laughs> What the Wikipedia page refers to as Stephen King's shortest novel, uh, for good reason, because this is just a short story published as a standalone. Yeah, it's not a novel by any, you know, I, I'm not getting into the, the realm of like, uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit on the uh, different seasons episode, right? Like what's a novel and what's a novella and what's a short story? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Joseph Fink <laughs> tweeted at us to, to make sure that we noted that, you know, apt pupil is longer than most novels are. Mm-hmm. Um, it, everyone was noticing this, you know, kind of independently. And, uh, you know, this one, I, I've seen this one referred to, or maybe it's in some of the commentary I listened to um, for the bonus episode, uh, which is on Silver Bullet, which is an adaptation of this. You can go to patreon.com slash range touch. Check out that bonus episode if you're not subscribed already. But uh, someone referred to this as a novelette, which <laughs> is a what a kind term. Yeah, very cute. Mm hmm. I guess you could also say this is a novella in that it it does feel like a sort of lengthy short story. Um, But if you've never read this and maybe you have or haven't actually didn't Cameron, didn't you say that this might have been the first one you read or one of the first ones you've read? Yeah, I I, I tried to kind of figure this out, uh, you know, and and think through it in the intervening month, but I, I couldn't quite pin it down. There's really no one for me to ask either. So mm-hmm. uh, the. Yeah, I believe this might be the first Stephen King thing I read. And if it's not the very first thing I read, it's right there in that like first five or six. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably because of the illustrations, just to be honest with you, um, mm-hmm. because they are rad as hell. And they are like exactly what I would have been into at like 11, 12 years old when I when I first started reading Stephen King. So, um, yeah, it was it was uh, it holds up. If I were 11 now I in reading this, I would have thought this was the coolest thing on earth. So, um, I, what's really funny is I didn't really remember any of the plot or anything like that, which we can get you in the, uh, you know, in the summary when we get there. But um, uh, no plot details, really, that I remember. Really just the illustrations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is uh, the second King and Bernie Wrightson collaboration. Bernie Wrightson did the illustrations so they have there are full page color illustrations as well as sort of like interstitial uh, illustrations um, happening at the beginning and ending of chapters. Uh, And they're real good. I agree. Uh, The I mean, my my overall take on this particular object, uh, just to cut to the chase, is that the story itself is whatever. Uh, the illustrations are really good, though. Yeah, the uh, I think this worked on me at, at a young age in the similar way that uh, scary stories to tell in the dark. <laughs> the, the way that they work where those stories are like sometimes scary, right? Or, you know, they're uneven, <laughs> we can say. Uh, you know, some are real uh, all timers and some are like. And there was a ghost there, and it scared them all. <laughs> Yowza! Uh, but uh, but you know those even those like less interesting stories maybe uh, have some really powerful illustrations. Uh, by I forget I forget the uh, illustrator's name. I bet you know. Do you know what? Oh oh oh! Uh, Stephen Gamble. There you go. I knew mm-hmm. it. <laughs> um, you know so. Uh, <laughs> Um, but, but similar here, right? Where the story is kind of whatever, but then you like flip to the illustration. You're like, oh damn, that werewolf's really knocking their shit apart over there. Mm -hmm. It's it's carrying a kite and that's scary. Um, although I will say just in a a basic formatting thing, often the illustration appears before the end of the story, Mm -hmm. meaning that you have the end of the story spoiled or the end of the little segment chapter or whatever spoiled for you. Mm-hmm. And look, normally that wouldn't matter, but this is a four page like micro thriller. I think you might need to hold some suspense <laughs> up about yeah. like how they're murdered. You know, maybe not if they're murdered. That's pretty clear. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that's just a little bit of a um, 
a little bit of feedback for the uh, Stephen King publication community. Um, I think over there at Simon and Schuster now. Yeah, this was put out by uh, Gallery Thirteen, which is the same imprint of Simon and Schuster that did the Creep Show reprint that we read just a couple months ago. Which I think is interesting. That must be kind of their like illustration heavy uh, imprint or something. Oh, uh, that's really funny. I, because Gallery Thirteen was like all over the back cover for my copy of Creep Show, but it, no, it's just Simon and Schuster everywhere here until you look at the actual copyright page. So yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Uh, how this thing began life then, uh, what what was Cycle of the Werewolf when it first existed? Well, it was a limited edition uh, book put together by a, an outfit called Land of Enchantment Press in 1983. It was an oversized 9 by 12. It was originally published as uh, a an unsigned hardcover limited to 7,500 copies and sold for $38.50. And it was only available through specialty bookstores or like ads in collector's magazines. Um, there was also a deluxe edition that was signed by both King and Wrightson. And this was limited to 350 copies, 100 of which included an original pencil drawing of the werewolf uh, in a separate Wrightson portfolio. Uh, presumably you paid a little bit more for this as well. Uh, it was such a kind of like specialty item that... For the, uh, I think, next maybe year or two, uh, it wasn't listed as part of like uh, the works by Stephen King in the front of his subsequent novels. It wasn't hmm. until a couple of years later uh, in 1985 that it got a mass market reprint um, and then it started getting included there. Uh, so that is that is what this object originally was. And we can think a little bit more about that, uh, especially in the context of how it came to be, which is that it was originally supposed to be a calendar. <laughs> oh, I'm, uh, just a little little FYI here ran the numbers, uh, you know, put on my big visor and started to get to get to get get, you know, on my big uh, macro calculator. Uh, $38 in 1983 dollars is $101 and 49 cents in 2021. Who boy. Mm -hmm. This is mm -hmm. more expensive than a PlayStation five video game. Neat. That's how I make all my calculations, <laughs> by the way, how much is uh, a PlayStation? And then, you know, well, uh, is this more than that? Less than that? That kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, this this was a, a pretty pricey object when it first uh, came into existence. And in fact, King himself has said that it was charging a lot for a little. Uh, and this was maybe like the the thing that a lot of my information, as usual, is coming from the essays on uh, Stephen King revisited the historical essays by Bev Vincent um, and the interview that Vincent uh, is quoting. I can't get the text itself, but it seems to be suggesting uh, for King um, that he was in the end, he was sort of unhappy with the existence of this thing for it being so expensive for what was in reality something so like small, so slight, mm -hmm. uh, which does kind of raise the question of like, I don't know why it got reprinted or maybe like maybe that is why it got reprinted right that he he was like well maybe i should just like use my power to make this thing cheap now i guess i don't know there, there's a strange ambivalence around it um especially when as i said it was initially supposed to be a like limited edition calendar with uh 500 word uh vignettes written vignettes that would accompany the illustrations um, and some very other uh, important information here. Uh, King got 
talked into, quote unquote, doing this uh, with the independent publisher Christopher Savisa at Providence, Rhode Island um, during the World Fantasy Convention in 1979. And according to Beth Vincent's uh, write up, which presumably derives from like, again, more King direct statements, uh, King's own admission is that he was drunk. He agreed to to write a calendar when he was drunk and then uh, sort of struggled through like the, the, this is a, a good reason to actually read these Vincent essays is uh, King can provide a fairly specific like history of what it was like to write this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, we talk a lot about Stephen King being blasted out of his mind on drugs and not remembering things. But there is like a history to how like the specific little micro chapters of this thing got written. Right. King remembers like which airports he was sitting in when he was writing them, that sort of thing. (laughs) Um, But uh, so the original, uh, you know, idea is that, okay, this is going to be a calendar. There's going to be like a 500 word short story or like, you know, chapter of a short story each month with an illustration by Wrightson. I think Wrightson was already on board at that point. Um, And then uh, King starts writing and true to form uh, cannot keep it under the 500 words. Part of it is that he also says that, um, you know, it it got a little too gruesome of just having like extremely short stories. That's like, here's a character and here's how they died. Here's a character and here's how they died. Uh, that if you're going for like real economy, it can get really gruesome really quickly. Um, so he goes in the opposite direction. And once he once he meets the character of Marty, he says uh, it just sort of unpacks. And of course, like uh, Marty is the protagonist. And we'll talk quite a bit about him, probably uh, once he has kind of the the overplot, I guess, then it becomes more of a, a little novella thing. And that's when he goes back to Savisa and says, uh, hey, like I did the thing that we said we were going to do, except I wrote too much. Would you rather just make this a limited edition print run? Uh, of a book and that's what it ends up being this this guy should have said no i want the calendar (laughs) i want all those people with dilberts and uh garfields you know with their little the single panel comic i want all those people to throw that away and look at stephen king murders every lunar (laughs) cycle Be like, no, Steve, you don't understand. Land of Enchantment Press is a calendar press. Mm-hmm. Land of Enchantment, not World of Books, Steve. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's that's sort of the the life cycle of cycle of the werewolf. Um, how this comes to be. Uh, Do you have any sort of thoughts about this, Cameron? I know one of the things that I wrote in the show doc uh, that -hmm. I don't think is a thing that you can necessarily answer is like, are you aware of any other author who does kind of these weird little limited edition uh, illustrated things in the way that King does? Not to the level of popularity that King does, uh, certainly. Mm -hmm. Uh, He seems very willing to do all these like little print run things all the time. Yeah, you know, was, it, it, at the kind of height of his uh, of Stephen Kingia, you know, in the 80s in particular, I, I don't know if I mean, he, I guess he does those with Bev Vincent and that kind of stuff now. But, um, you know, with Cemetery Dance mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, and and all that stuff. But yeah, I can't think of anyone who who was this famous, in, you know, in the early 80s, who was doing similar kind of like, and sometimes I'll just do a little thing that you'll never hear about if you don't read like the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and see an ad in the back. No, I can't really think of anyone comparable there. I mean, n- now I think there are people like I, you know, um, I think Kim Stanley Robinson does some stuff like this now. Mm. Is that true? Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't keep up with Robinson too closely. Well, I think I think that now there are kind of uh, famous science fiction and fantasy authors, and maybe this was always the case. Uh, you know, I, I'm not super into this part of like genre history, but. I, I think, you know, there's always been this like, oh, you know, I'll do X number of um, special edition-y kind of things. I think that's that's been a culture for a while. But I, but I feel like now I see way more than I did like five or six years ago even. A lot more um, new book coming out and then there's 500 or 1,000 of those and they're signed and they're like got a special lithograph in them and it goes to charity. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of I think Jeff Vandermeer does that uh, with that, um, yeah. the the St. Mark's Refuge um, that that uh, uh, Area X is based out on or around that kind of thing. So I, f- I feel like maybe this still exists now and maybe even, you know, I, I mean, Vandermeer is not comparably famous to King in the 80s, but still, you know, a, a well-known fiction name. I don't know. I yeah, But I, the question you're asking is, you know, people at this level of uh career achievement and i can't think of anyone um who's doing that yeah that was sort of what i was wondering just because i mean uh i was under the impression that yeah obviously writers do this sort of thing particularly like uh the scenario that you just described with vandermeer seems uh exactly what i would think that that writers would be doing these days and the thing that is sort of interesting to me about king is um not only is he doing this pretty frequently so this is also just you know this is basically also how the gunslinger comes about as well right it Mm -hmm. starts out as as kind of a special limited edition thing um but then the the thing that's really interesting about king and you bring up cemetery dance is that like uh, like new editions of King's books will come out through mm-hmm. especially like Cemetery Dance in like a special edition with like new illustrations and like a slip case and, and all of this other stuff. Uh, and one of the things that I remember very strongly from my, you know, young teendom in early Internet days as part of like the Stephen King listservs. Uh, was the collector culture around these things um people mm-hmm. like you know snapping them up or like looking for like a specific specific special edition of like their like you know Salem's Lot or something because Salem's Lot is their favorite king book or they like buy every edition of Salem's Lot that sort of thing um and I was just wondering about that because, yeah, I don't think this is something that like John Grisham is doing or even even Dean Koontz, who I know for a fact did a couple like wrote a couple of like weird, like illustrated limited edition, like children's books. Hmm. Um, Because one of them is like a tie in to one of his actual thriller novels. Yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, that is extremely strange. Yeah, I'm looking. I, I just, you know, threw threw up here, right? Like. John Grisham limited editions, and it looks like that Doubleday did do the John Grisham Library, huh. which are like leather bound <laughs> copies of John Grisham books. It costs twelve thousand dollars. Good lord! <laughs> <laughs> but but that's a different. That's a wholly different thing, right? This is like the uh, you want to like look like a cool uh you know victorian library owner but you want those to be john grisham books <laughs> yeah, it's like which is a very weird impetus here forget my collected works of philip massinger uh here's my collected john grisham 
Yeah, but but very different thing, right? Yeah, I'm not seeing anything that's like this. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I I think it has to do with like the the genre fan market. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, like con culture and all that. I mean, Stephen King's doing that stuff in the 80s. He's going to these things. We're just talking about World Fantasy Convention. Um, and, and I think also maybe the additional piece of the pie here to, to, to think about is that we've talked about this a few times, but right, the, Stephen King is part of the paperback revolution in the 1970s. And now he, in the 1980s, is part of the growing, I mean, it's, it's, this is the Reagan years. Mm-hmm. everything is becoming a financial instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, everything is becoming a kind of speculative commodity. And the bonus episode, we're going to talk extensively, maybe not extensively, but we're going to talk quite a bit about what's happening in 1984 and 85 and 86 around Dino De Laurentiis and getting involved in Wall Street. Um, and so, you know, there's this increased... Um, explosion of free market activities during the Reagan years mm-hmm. uh, due, due to um, the absolute dismantling of the state mm-hmm. <laughs> and the looting of the state by, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the Reaganites in a broad sense. And uh, I think the idea of producing, well, so number one, Stephen King gets produced as like a financial figure, meaning that people are using him as a conduit just to make and print money. He's huge. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the... Uh, one thing that's worth remembering with like a book like It, which we're coming up on very shortly, is that It is popular because it is both a, uh, a you know a, a well written book, and it is a book that was promoted to high heaven, <laughs> right? Like we always have to remember that you know uh, that history, especially the back half of the twentieth century, lots of things that we think of as important or big or whatever were purchased into our brains. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, right? That's the counter history of Nintendo is that Nintendo didn't just make better products or something like that. Nintendo also spent millions and millions and millions of dollars promoting itself very tactically to people in the United States after the video game crash. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there, there are these things, especially in the 80s, when uh, money was so much more free flowing due to all this kind of broad economic pressure to make money flow. Uh, that, uh, you know, some a big chunk of our culture today is just downstream from investment strategies. Mm-hmm. And Stephen King is an investment strategy at this time. And so I think partially the, the, this, um, the two of us being like, I can't really think of anyone else like that, is that Stephen King is kind of producing this figure at that mm-hmm. moment of being mm-hmm. a massive, iconic kind of figure, while also at the same time being kind of grounded in his genre roots. Uh, where these special editions have their own kind of co- collector currency. Um, I don't have a sense one way or the other. Do you know if Stephen King is like a big book collector himself? Uh, I don't get the sense that he's a big book collector necessarily. Uh, the most that I can say about Steve is that I I feel certain to say that he is a, a sort of voracious reader, right? I yeah. think the man yeah. is like taken on books uh, uh, like, like nobody's business. Um, but I don't know if he like invests a lot in the formal properties of the book itself or like specific editions or things like that. Yeah. My, uh, yeah. I've never heard one way or the other, but it wouldn't surprise me to find out that like, Oh, Stephen King has complete collections of, you know, whatever original Lovecraft or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, or that, like you just said, or that he does not give a shit about any of that mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and could care less about what, what he's doing. Right. But I think both could, you know, uh, be equally likely to me in my mind, but Anyway, that's all to say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have an answer to your question. 
I just I felt like it was something something to talk about before we it went is, into yeah. before we went into the five sentence summary. Oh, <clears throat> this is me, right? Mm-hmm. It's a real you challenge know, this month. You know, sometimes there uh, we get some discussion about the five sentence summary, right? And I think I've brought this up, but this might be your first episode. Uh, congratulations, welcome to the show. If it is. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, so we've gotten some feedback of people think, what's the joke here? Someone directly said this <laughs> to us. What's the joke here that you're just taking a long time to read five sentences from Wikipedia? No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I, uh, come up with this off the dome. We both come up with this off the dome. We don't do any pre-writing. In, in, in fact, I really don't know if it's my time to do the five sentence summary or not until we scroll down the sheet and I discover if my initials are there or not. Mm-hmm. Cause it's just not a thing I'm keeping track of. So this is, you know, purely uh, from from the uh, from the imagination. Uh, <clears throat> five sentence summary for Cycle of the Werewolf. Uh, sentence one. In the time before gaming, people <laughs> in rural Maine didn't have anything to do with their spare time. Period. Werewolves were running around willy-nilly in the <laughs> 1970s, comma, and, open parentheses, Michael, what is the name of uh, this town? Uh, Tarker's Mills. Tarker's Mills. Close parentheses. Tarker's Mills. Period. This is not my third sentence. I, I'm pretty sure that's a sentence. Someone will have to map that one for me, but I think I got it all. Third sentence. A young boy named Marty confronts the werewolf who is killing people in Tarker's Mills with fireworks and destroys its one eyeball. Of two, it should be said. Yes. Made it sound like the, it was just a natural fact that werewolves have one eye, and that's just wrong. I would not. I didn't. I didn't say it was a cyclopean werewolf. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. Come on, jeez. Have some respect for the listener. <laughs> all that is outside. All this is outside the sentence. I'm still continuing the sentence. You already uh, breached the magic circle, so mm-hmm, that destroyed its one eyeball. <laughs> uh, and is sent to Vermont for his troubles. <laughs> The werewolf continues killing people <laughs> willy-nilly for no good reason. It's just fun to do it. Yeehaw. Period. Marty returns from Vermont and while dressed as Yoda <laughs> discovers that the werewolf is none other than a Protestant preacher. Mm-hmm. Semicolon. He then murders the werewolf (laughs) (laughs) slash preacher period five sentences. There you go. Yep. That's cycle of the werewolf. That is Uh, the 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 calendar roots of this are visible in the fact that it is just a series of uh, 12 chapters. Very, very short chapters. uh, And 
each one kind of takes place like it's like, you know, skipping forward a month between each one. And so you get the entire year of this werewolf uh, murdering people in rural Maine uh, in in a very, very brief space. And yeah, it's it's exactly what Cameron just said. It's a very simple story. There's not a whole lot more to it. Um, I mean, I'll be honest, calling this a story is really charitable. Yeah, it really, it really is a collection of vignettes. It's just some stuff that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you, but you know, the 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 thing I will say about it is that you know, in our show notes, you wrote this is an eighth of Salem's Lot. Did you mean in length? Yes. Okay. Well, I, I, so I read that and I thought, oh, it is kind of an eighth of Salem's Lot in the sense that it is like one eighth of the story of Salem's Lot, which is. This kind of wandering eye camera around the thing. Is that what you meant? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that. This is the the wandering eye camera uh, segments from Salem's Lot uh, doing the exact same thing, right? Instead of what if there was a small town in rural Maine and vampires showed up and it's it's pulling on all the same stuff that I talked about in the Salem's Lot episode, right? There's a lot of um, uh, Spoon River anthology going on here, Winesburg, Ohio, right? Here is a small, sleepy, quiet rural town. Here are the types of characters that you would meet in this town, right? Here's the town drunk. Here's the town constable. Here's the local spinster who everyone secretly pities and and that sort of thing. Uh, And then here's what happens to their lives when the werewolf shows up. Um, it is all of that, but in the quickest uh, and and sort of shallowest possible mode compared to what happens in Salem's Lot. Yeah, and I and I think this impulse, you know, because we've talked about this kind of uh, camera narratorial, you know, almost like pseudo cinematic literary device that Stephen King uses for talking about space, you know, or, or, or demonstrating space to us, and it's something that showed up really early in King. You know, it shows up in Carrie, and it's that's the epistolary function. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's what he's using that for is to get to fill out the space, fill out the world, and then it turns into this like cinematic camera, and that's Salem's Lot. And then he deploys it in various ways, right? Over the like all the books after that, right? It's very um, embedded within whatever part of the genre each novel is in. Mm-hmm. It, but but I think over these past couple, it, it's really solidified. Uh, into a very particular form, right? From different seasons through Christine into Cycle of the Werewolf, it is very clear how that narratorial device fills out the world. I think it has very similar styles and types, right? So like it's a camera and it shows you a scene and then it gets to zoom into someone's brain and you get to hear what they're thinking about the world and then it comes back out and then things begin happening to them. You know, I think there's a very... Um, almost programmatic way that he moves the narrating voice around these books at this point. And it's going to get, you know, hyper-intensified in it. I think that that's kind of the the plateau of this narrative capability for, for Stephen King. I don't think he ever gets better at doing it than that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that's partially why people run aground in some of the books after that, so Needful Things or The Tommyknockers, is that... He's still swinging. He's at that plateau. It just can't go any further. Um, but but what's interesting, you know, about Cycle of the Werewolf is that it is, you know, what is the bare minimum product that you can deliver while making that whole apparatus work? And so I, I think that if you're, like, looking to see how does Stephen King, like, 
imagine up a scenario or communicate a scenario in very few words, this is a little bit of a masterclass in like how to do the Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I were teaching like a comp course that was like scary story writing, I would just excerpt one of these and be like, all right, this is the assignment, right? Replicate, create another cycle, uh, you know, not the full 12 months, but write an additional month mm-hmm. of the werewolf thing. And I think that's a, you know, and do it in Stephen King's style. And I think that, you know, the the economy here is very impressive. You know, how many, in how few words can you give a really good sense of a person and the place they live in and then the bad things that happens to them? And sometimes it's entirely, uh, you know, outside of the text, right? Like the murder happens and they only see the aftermath or mm-hmm. um, the, you know, it's all about them hearing it. There's a, there's a uh, section where a bunch of pigs get murdered. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just hear it and you see the aftermath. And, of course, the Bernie Wrightson illustration, like, really sells it. But um, I, I think there's a lot of, like, really genius uh, economy of expression here. Yes, I I agree. I think especially kind of the earlier chapters that is just here's here is the town stock character and here's what happens to this town stock character. So, you know, like the, the guy who works as like a signalman at the railroad yard. Um, and he's, you know, a drunk, uh, not a mean drunk. The mean drunk also shows up later. We get two different types of, uh, uh, drunk guys, uh, in this story, but, um, you know, starting out with him, like, you know, getting a sense very, very quickly for like, what is this guy's life? Like, what is he doing day to day? Like how, how can we establish normalcy for this character as quickly as possible? Um, and then here's what happens to him when the werewolf shows up. And then here's a little bit of uh, and then actually what I think is really nice about the like skipping forward each month um, is that you get sort of the the delay of the effects of what you just read. So you can get into a new character's head, um, do a couple things, and then suddenly that character will remember, oh, what about what's his face who got ripped apart on the railroad tracks, uh, you know, last month? Um so, yes, I, I agree. There's a, a really nice economy here uh, for most of these stories. And sort of notably, the economy is totally derailed when we get to the protagonist of the story. Uh, <laughs> yes. Who is. Yeah, you can, you can feel <laughs> Stephen King like. So it's like from January to June, it's like, oh, yeah, OK, we're, we're clipping right along here. Right. That's that's 50 pages, a little bit short of 50 pages. And then uh, the other half of the year is. A third longer, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's a, about 100 pages or so, a little bit less than that. Um, and yeah, once Stephen King, like, decides there's a main character to this thing, he, like, can't help himself. And mm-hmm. I actually think that it's impressive that this didn't turn into a 30,000-word, you know, novella. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there was some restraint, or maybe just a strong editor that was like, you know what, Steve, you got it. Let's <laughs> not push on this anymore. But yeah, tell us tell us about uh, Marty. <laughs> So the the protagonist of Cycle of the Werewolf is a 10-year-old boy named Marty Koslaw, mm-hmm. which is, I know that's a real last name. I know it is, but Marty Col- like Coleslaw. Yeah, it's just Marty Coleslaw is. <laughs> okay. All right, Steve. Okay. Um, anyway, Marty is a 10-year-old boy. Uh, he is essentially Mark from Salem's Lot in that he's a you know young boy who is interested enough in monsters that when one of them starts creeping around the local area, he's like, I bet this is some sort of werewolf. Uh, it also helps that he 
encounters the werewolf directly. Mm-hmm. Um, he also, and this is very important, he uses a wheelchair. Um, and it is, I'm not really sure what King is thinking about this. Like what, what is, it's, it's an interesting move. There is no other like pre-indicator at anything else we've read before this, that like, this is the situation of a person that Stephen King like has been thinking about, right? A person, um, with a disability. Uh, and it, it makes me wonder, like, is there just, does this happen because it's an economical way to like put a character into a situation that Stephen King can then like work through? Because uh, most of what we get about Marty's home life is that everything in everyone around him, right? All of the interactions that happen with him are in some ways conditioned by the fact that he uses a wheelchair and what people think about that or like, uh, you know, aren't saying to him directly about what their opinions of him are, right? There's a lot of like pity from everyone around him, Mm -hmm. um, which is, uh, I don't know, pretty sad. Yeah, well, for Stephen King at this point, I think a thing that we can confidently say you know, based on the materials that in front of us and the books that we've read, is that disability confers goodness. Mm-hmm. Or, or disability confers an additional kind of roadblock to one's life that that you can get over, and it's, like, triumphant and cool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's virtuous. And, yeah, it's virtuous. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I, I think that's just where it's coming from here, right? Like, not only is this a little boy... Right, uh, mm-hmm. but he he's a little boy who, and he's ten. Right, that's a that's a thing that changes. I think a little bit between this and Silver Bullet. Again, mm-hmm. we'll talk about it in the Patreon bonus episode, patreoncom uh, range touch. Uh, the link is down in the description below. But uh, you know, that's something that they changed there to make it a little bit more workable. But you know, that, that's really an age where you are entirely. Um, at the mercy of everyone around you, just in a general sense, right? Like you can't mm-hmm. do anything on your own, really. You don't have a lot of independence. And then Stephen King is uh, compounding on that, right? That that there's this whole kind of um, sympathetic economy. You know, people don't think that he can do anything. Mm-hmm. And the and the story uh, of Marty is that he can he can do a lot. You know, mm-hmm. all you people who have diminished expectations around him. Uh, you just didn't know that he had the perseverant spirit to to get along with it. Uh, this is also a Reaganism, right? Yes. This this is one hundred percent. You know, the early nineteen eighties is again the era of Reagan, the era of um, why? Uh, you know, this is where um, oh gosh, the uh, the conservative term the the tyranny of diminished expectations begins to emerge. Mm-hmm. Right? Are, are you familiar with this term? <laughs> Yes, yes. The the idea being here that uh, um, because because people people run the risk of coddling Marty uh, mm-hmm. by yeah. by trying to make too many accommodations for his disability, uh, and in the process, uh, it, they're just actually totally disempowering him. Mm-hmm. And th- and this is language. This is kind of conservative language for the most part that that is being used a b- against any minority group in the 1980s, and mm-hmm. and it continues. And this is actually just kind of part of the the uh, political discourse that we have today. You know, I think this often really gets paired with ideas that are back in the news again. You know, uh, on their uh, it like cycle, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, around um, uh, equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. Mm-hmm. 
right? The, the very similar kind of um, discussions about how do social minorities in the world's broadest sense of what that might mean, how are they uh, accommodated for in society? So that's all to say, I think Steve is just, you know, uh, when, when in Dance Macabre, when he says, yeah, I just lean into whatever people are <laughs> afraid of or thinking of. I think this is Steve leaning into into Reagan mm-hmm. and doing the Reagan thing. I mean, he he is just literalizing in a story a kind of a triumphant case of a you know a valiant individual who is able to against all circumstances achieve the American dream of murdering a werewolf. <laughs> and the film brings so much of this so more closely to the surface. Yeah, and like, Stephen King wrote the script for the film. Yeah, it's the the. I recommend the bonus episode. We have not recorded it yet, but I think we're going to have an interesting conversation because of how much of this, how much of sort of the political subtext that we're talking about here, um, really just gets uh, uh lifted to the surface of of the film. Um, mm-hmm, related to the related to this is Uncle Al in in the novella, <laughs> uh, the character that Gary Busey plays in the film, who also gets renamed as Uncle Red for whatever reason. Uh, but Uncle Al, who is uh, Marty's uh, like good, not really good for nothing, but like a uh, colorful character of an uncle. Right. Whereas Marty's mother is the the sibling who has like settled down and started a family. Uh, Uncle Al is going through his like second or third divorce. Uh, he's the one who gives Marty some fireworks, like some secret illegal fireworks on the night that uh, the, the the actual town cancels the, their Fourth of July fireworks on account of all the werewolf murders. And so Marty's mm-hmm. really depressed. And this is where Marty enters the story in July. Um, he gets mentioned very briefly once early on, but this is where he like assumes protagonist status. Uh, and so, uh, you know, he's the uncle who's like willing to let him be a boy and be a kid and, and, uh, you know, do things and make mistakes, but then learn from those mistakes and build character and so on and so forth. Right. Um, really that, that character, uh, of the uncle gets expanded for Busey in the film, but the, the specific function that the character serves is absolutely the same. Yeah, and and that that function is like pure ideology, right? Like uh he is he is there to not have diminished expectations which Stephen King associates I mean this is just good old fashioned Steve misogyny, right? But um uh there's this double maneuver that happens where Marty's mother is too protective mm-hmm. and that is a coddling. And Marty's dad is an idiot jock. Yes. And who can't even understand like what's going on, and so ends up treating Marty as like an alien, essentially. Mm-hmm. And like I, you know, I think both of these are probably very uh, real feeling, right? I, I'm I'm not a wheelchair user. Uh, I did not grow up as a wheelchair user, right? I, I don't want to overstate my belief on uh, you know reality here, the reality effect of the thing. But you can see these uh, as uh, character kind of broad types and people in the world, right? Like. I certainly grew up with lots of people who had no idea how to interact with, and especially, uh, you know, small town, very Tarker's Mills uh, kind of vibe, just no idea about how to interact with anyone who was not identical to them in, uh, you know, a lot of different ways, but including ability. And, uh, you know, the, the overprotective mother who is concerned about their child, that's something that Stephen King, you know, we've noted, loves a lot. 
that this character type is going to come back supercharged again in it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, you know, they ring true in their like really broad, sketchy parts of them. But, um, you know, they're just an engine to like oppress Marty so that he can blow out of that uh, with a gun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Stephen King will have us believe that uh, any triumphant young boy can fire a gun and kill a werewolf. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know if there's much else to talk about here, unless you had some things that you wanted to pick out. If we want to talk more specifically about like, say low Reverend low, the, the person who turns out to be the werewolf. Well, let's just talk in some general sense about some highlights How about that. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, one highlight I think is that when Marty, so Marty gets these illegal fireworks from his uncle. If you feel like we have not given you a broad enough summary of this thing. We we really have. Werewolf shows up, January, murders a guy. Werewolf shows up every month after that and murders a guy until they get to July. And then he tries to murder Marty. Marty has these fireworks from his uncle, throws them in the werewolf's face, blows out its eyeball. Werewolf continues to just <laughs> murder people in vignettes mm-hmm. over and over again until finally Marty... Uh, sends him enough like um, harassing letters mm-hmm. <laughs> to lure him out and then murders him with a silver bullet. The end. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's you know, that we are not in any way kind of giving short shrift to the plot here because there barely is one. But I, I like the, um, I like when Marty throws the fireworks in that werewolf's face. I think that's pretty cool. I like the part where uh, the werewolf reaches through that window and rips the uh, cheek off that police officer. Oh, yeah. That's pretty cool. The constable. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was uh, drinking on the job, too. Yep. A little bit of a moral moral fable there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, there, there's this reverend. I don't know. Do you, you have reverend thoughts here and about this revelation at the end? Do you have ideas about wearing Yoda costumes on Halloween? <laughs> I really loved the, the detail of the Yoda costume. Just some mm-hmm. just some nice cultural materialism there in my my textual record. So I I mean I just wanted to talk about Low because I guess he's the I mean he's the antagonist of the story, uh, and he's a version of another Stephen King character. He's sort of the the religious hypocrite, but and I guess this is what makes him interesting to me is that he's filtered through uh, like Jack from The Shining, uh, in the sense that he is. Uh, aware that something is wrong with him uh he he doesn't so at first he does not have any knowledge that he is the werewolf um he just knows that people are being murdered around town uh but he starts having nightmares uh where people in his congregation are turning into werewolves and then uh the custodian of his church is one of the victims of the werewolf and eventually uh, it is he can't uh, deny it after he loses an eye. He wakes up one morning and he's just missing an eye after Marty has thrown the fireworks in his face. Uh, and he puts it together that he is the werewolf and he spends kind of the back half of the story uh, in a sort of battle with himself. Like, well, I'm a werewolf. What do I do with this now? Uh, and possibly maybe one of the the funniest details of this just I, it, funny in a very dark way is that Marty is after he's figured out that the uh, reverend is the werewolf because the reverend is now walking around with an eye patch. Uh, mm-hmm. Marty starts sending him like taunting letters, encouraging him <laughs> to commit suicide. Yes. And they don't say 
they're not letters that are like here. Let me just read them. How about that? Yeah. You sorry. Keep keep going, and I'll, <laughs> I'll pull them up and I'll read them. So so Marty is sending him these letters, and we get this really interesting scene where Reverend Lowe is like sort of thinking to himself about like, well, because he's like, man, I'm a werewolf, and I don't know what to do about this. I guess maybe suicide is kind of the answer, but also I'm a reverend and a Christian, and that would probably send me to hell. Uh, and there's just this real tension uh, in terms of like what. What do you do with yourself when you become a werewolf? But then uh, we see a uh, low kind of uh, convince himself in a very, again, Jack like fashion mm-hmm. that like, no, actually, this is not my fault. Like, this is nothing I'm responsible for. Uh, and uh, it also uh, should be noted that uh, Lowe's experience of uh, uh, lycanthropy is talked about in the terms of an alcoholic, like explicitly, mm-hmm. like uh, it said something about, uh, you know, he he didn't even notice anything. He just happened to like wake up after the full moon every month with, and I quote, the alcoholic's sense of, and then, you know, mm-hmm. like whatever, whatever piece uh, supposedly an alcoholic has after they've gone on uh, uh, one of a, re- one of their regular benders or something like that. So it's, it's sort of this pattern uh, or it's, the the werewolf thing is mirroring kind of the the pattern of the alcoholic who uh, drinks to excess, has kind of a blow up and then resets. Right. That kind of uh, cycle of substance abuse. Well, that's something that's really interesting about, you know, the Just King Things method here. This is another place where the method is, is paying off in the sense of reading everything in order, because Stephen King's uh, approach to this the addiction metaphor is quite different now. Mm-hmm. You, you know, for Jack, there was this very explicit unknowing and maybe a little bit of an itch in the back of the head. But there's really not a point in that book where he is like a fully cognizant, rational being. Right. And there's, you know, all kinds of um, ideology built up in that in that statement. But I think that's, you know, the kind of Kingian imagination, you know, where, where he's making like full decisions as a full person. Um, anytime that, by the time that he starts doing truly evil things, that part of him is eradicated. You know, mm-hmm. he's been overtaken by something. In both Christine and Cycle of the Werewolf now, we've gotten kind of two runs at the idea that, you know, this almost uh, shining like the thing is overtaking you, right? Mm-hmm. In Arnie's case, it's being an evil greaser. <laughs> and in this case, it's being a werewolf. And it is like the the overtaking happens at the halfway point or like the two thirds point. And then they just kind of look at square in the face and they go, I guess that's what I am now. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so there's not a point in either of these where it's like, uh oh, the overlook took him all the way over. And, you know, he's going to hold on to himself. And then uh, ultimately, you know, it's going to uh, beat him back. You know, he will be defeated. That's not really what happens in both Christine and Cycle the Werewolf. It's like, all right, well, I guess uh, this is me. This is how I live my life now. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I guess this is bad, but uh, what can you do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it, it's a real change in the way that, that this kind of addiction metaphor works, and the kind of I, you know, I would say, but br- the books, the author functions. You know, not maybe Steve's personal opinion, but the way that the words are put together, the ideology behind how it understands the addiction metaphor. 
Uh, I have these pulled up now. If you want, you want me to read them to you? Yes, go ahead. So these are the letters that Marty is sending to the Reverend. Now, remember, these are letters that are meant to... The, the broad communication is supposed to be, I know you're a werewolf. But imagine that you're just a person and you get these letters. Letter number one. I know who you are. Letter number two. If you are a man of God, get out of town. Go someplace where there are animals for you to kill, but no people. Letter num- number three. End it. The last one. Why don't you kill yourself? Like, what is so sort of weird to me about this is just, uh, this feels actually extremely realistic. <laughs> Insofar as such a term can be applied here, it's like, okay, I'm a 10-year-old boy who's trying to taunt the werewolf that I've located in town. What am I going to do? Uh, I'm going to write these notes on my school notebook paper and just mail them to him. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the movie makes a real choice here where they have Marty like serial killer style, <laughs> like, yes. like Zodiac killer style, like cutting papers out, you know, uh, uh, like out of a magazine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's much more uh, disturbing looking. <laughs> Even though the content is obviously disturbing. But yeah, like Marty doesn't know what to do. And so his idea is like, I'll just send threatening letters, I guess, and hope it all works out. Like I and like this, this is to be clear, like kind of, I guess, Marty's uh, goal is to drive Reverend Lowe to uh, kill himself before Marty is forced to do something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know I what guess. the intended outcome is. It's like maybe he'll just leave. Because yeah. someone knows he's the werewolf, and it's like, oh, I mean, maybe maybe he doesn't. And then, of course, the kind of end of the story is that Marty keeps sending these, but then he sends them uh, signed his own name. Mm-hmm. And so his assumption would be if the Reverend was not a werewolf, then he would have, like, called his parents and been like, why is your son sending me death <laughs> threats? <laughs> why, is, why is your son uh, trying to, uh, you know, I don't know, encourage me to kill myself? And uh, great detective work, Marty. Yeah, I'm, look, I that, this <laughs> I'm I just gotta be honest. It's not the worst strategy on the earth. I mean, it it, it is a sound strategy. It it definitely achieved the goal, mm-hmm. which was like, all right, maybe I've played my hand wrong here. I'm gonna open it up. And so, yeah, the fact that he doesn't show up, Marty's like, he's definitely a werewolf. Uncle Lau, we gotta murder this guy. <laughs> we gotta get him. And they get a you know a, a gun, and then Marty shoots this werewolf two times mm-hmm. um the uh yeah that's kind of it uh we're going to be spending the back half of this episode not half maybe uh you know another half hour or so on this episode uh t- going into the question sewer so maybe we can go through our segments real quick okay so uh my favorite kingism uh, is the segment where we pick out a piece of prose or a piece of writing and whatever we've just read that either seems indelibly Kingian, indicative of the Kingian style, or is just real good. Uh, my particular uh, Kingism for this episode actually comes after just after the uh, all the all the uh, uh, taunting letters that Marty sends because it's in the same mm-hmm. chapter where Lowe is kind of reflecting on his situation. Um, and the question uh, is, uh, you know, it, it starts out um, with Marty's letter, you know, why don't you kill yourself? And Lowe sort of thinking like, because he says, I don't want to. 
Um, and then the, the he sort of is like working through like how, you know, he wasn't attacked by a werewolf. Like none of this happened to him for for any specific reason. Right. As far as he's aware, he did not do a thing that like turned him into a werewolf. Um, he says it just happened. And this is his interior monologue. It just happened. I picked some flowers for the vases in the church vestry one day last November, up by that pretty little cemetery on Sunshine Hill. I never saw such flowers before, and they were dead before I could get back to town. They turned black even, every one. Perhaps that was when it started to happen. No reason to think so exactly, but I do, and I won't kill myself. They are the animals, meaning the people in town, not me. So what I like about this is just uh, how how uh, effortlessly it brings up the question of why is there a werewolf to begin with? And then says, it doesn't really matter. This is as good a reason as any. This guy picked some wrong flowers. Yeah, I really this, I, I did not have an additional one because I think this is the kind of the most uh, this was also my, um, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? My. Favorite Kingism because uh, it is really the only place in this novel that is truly weird, mm-hmm. and it's this is this is real folklore. Oh, I, so I was going to wonder, or I was going to ask, and I assume that you would know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. So this is a real thing. You pick some flowers, and you're a werewolf now. Uh, it's specifically probably some wolf's bane. Uh, it's specifically, I think. I um, mean, this of course, it's it's a it's a folk belief, right? Werewolves were not invented by the uh, contemporary media apparatus. They have uh, long, long histories. Um, so, like one particular aspect of werewolf belief from I think the Balkans, um, if you. Uh, pick flowers that have grown on the grave of a werewolf, then you too will be turned into a werewolf. Um, Hmm. And there are other, I think, sort of versions of this that certain types of flowers, if picked at certain times, uh, have a risk of infecting you with uh, lycanthropy. Um, But the one that like the sort of the one that I remember first hearing when I was a little kid in reading volumes of folklore, because that's the kind of kid I was, uh, was like if like a a werewolf who is dead and buried uh, the flowers that grow on their grave. Uh, if picked will turn whoever picks them into a werewolf Mm, gotcha yeah it has this kind of like almost uh, it feels like steve riffing on lovecraft a little bit where Mm -hmm. it's like yeah just stuff's happening and uh good luck figuring that out (laughs) like there's a more pressing issue than the backstory on this one you know we got a little bit of it and yeah i thought it was really great um you know i it I I think there's a different version of the story that is maybe a little bit more interesting, and you can see some some uh, pieces of it in the film, um, but but where we get really no interiority on the part of the of the preacher mm-hmm. or of the reverend, um, you know, we get we get more rationalization in this book than we get in the film, and I I, I kind of would have preferred if I got a little bit less of him, but but also it wouldn't really fit the narrative device. Um, what do you think about this, uh, this book's, uh, inherently pro-Catholic statement? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's not the first time we've seen Catholicism having kind of an edge on other things. Uh, do you want to, you want to, uh, unpack what the inherently pro-Catholic <laughs> nature of Cycle of the Werewolf is here? Well, so Marty, <laughs> it's really weird how this all comes together, right? Like, so Marty doesn't know that the Reverend is the the werewolf for like a long time, because Marty is a Catholic, mm-hmm. and he goes to the Catholic church on the other side of town, and so he's not there in church every week with um 
the you know the reverend with his his eye patch on mm-hmm. um and uh well that that's just it like at the end of the day the catholics got the gun yeah well in it, the old school superstition i was gonna say they've got the superstition and they've got mm-hmm. access to uh they've got ready access to silver <laughs> so- to silver that's right, right. because it's his confirmation uh, spoon yes marty <laughs> melts down his confirmation spoon in order to make the silver for the bullet um and this is like uh you know this is classic uh, uh american catholic uh gothicism right the uh when mm-hmm. uh the 80s horror boom grows out of the exorcist and a lot of horror studies mm-hmm. that writes on uh, a lot of horror studies scholars who write on kind of um this this turn in popular culture, uh, but also sort of like working it backward into like what is what is inherent to kind of the gothic as a genre as it comes over from Europe and, and as it uh, sort of formulates uh, uniquely in America is this weird ambivalence between um, America being a. Uh, largely right uh, as as the, the United like the the English speaking United States of America as it is uh, founded by uh, colonists uh, who are primarily Protestants uh, who historically speaking if this is not a thing that you know a lot about not on good terms with Catholics particularly in the 16th and 17th century when uh, all the settler colonialism is happening. Um, but uh, so it, in one way, right, there's there's a, a national imaginary, a Protestant national imaginary uh, that tries to relegate Catholicism to the past. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the repressed always returns. And so in horror stories and particularly in American horror stories, <clears throat> not not getting paid for that. Um uh, Catholicism becomes like, you know, when the monsters show up, you got to go to the Catholic priest because, as you say, they're the ones who keep the superstitions, right? All the stuff that Protestants consider to be superstitious, all these ceremonies, all of these artifacts and so on and so forth. Um, they're all useless detritus superstition until the monsters show up and then they become effective again. Look, I mean, that's just where it's at. <laughs> Sometimes you have a culture that's just uh, inherently ready for Catholicism or for, for uh, the supernatural to appear. Mm-hmm. What are all those saints doing if they're not just <laughs> waiting around, ready to kill, kill a werewolf or a vampire or a mummy or, you know, whatever? Some sort of Jekyll and Hyde. Oh, I need to look into the saints and figure out which one would be most most effective against mummies. Mm. <laughs> There's got to be a saint of like weaving or <laughs> raveling. <laughs> oh goodness! Uh, but yeah, but yeah, absolutely right. You know, this is kind of, as you just said the the kind of relationship between, um, you know, it's the baroqueness of Catholicism that you know kind of gives it this uh, American cachet mm-hmm. in dealing with the supernatural. But uh, other segment here, what in the Kingiverse? Not not a lot of other. Uh, I, I think probably no references, you know, to the King of Verse proper, but but uh, I think probably a thing to note here just really quickly is that uh, the character in a wheelchair mm-hmm. is going to show back up mm-hmm. a couple times. Character in a um, wheelchair who fires a gun. Yeah, character in a wheelchair with a gun, but also like the wheelchair as a signal or a sign of dependence mm-hmm. and then overcoming the wheelchair as a kind of... Uh, I don't know, um, 
uh, a virtuous maneuver, I guess, mm-hmm. is, is the, the right thing here, right? And also this kind of thing of uh, recognizing that someone who is a wheelchair user is not less than the rest of the group. You know, that Steve is using, likes to use the iconicity of the wheelchair um, in a lot of pretty deeply ideological ways. Um, and is going to compound uh, the, you know, uh, uh, who is Susanna if not a intersectional figure? Mm. Um, but uh, uh, perhaps Oof. in the most negative way that you could deploy that uh, that concept. But we're going to get the character. Um, uh, we'll get Odetta and Detta and then Susanna in the Dark Tower uh, series. And she's a black woman in a wheelchair um, who is also has a split personality. So it's just like. How much stuff mm-hmm. can we cram into one character? And she's a civil rights activist. <laughs> she's a, that's right. Oh, actually, she's not. That that's a that's oh, a really key. She's like an right. inheritor of civil rights activism. Who like is like the uh, like uh, black petty bourgeois, mm-hmm. and St- and King is like deeply critical of that too. So there, it's it's basically every thought that Stephen King had about any minoritized person from 1975 to 1990 mm-hmm. <laughs> compiled into one human being. Oh, goodness. Um, there, it's going to be a full hour of the drawing of three, just working through what the hell is going on with her. But So not to preview that too much, but I do think we're getting a little bit of a preview of some of the the ideas that Stephen King is using the wheelchair for is like a literary device uh, in in the Dark Tower. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uncle Stevie's mixtape is the segment where we talk about songs that were mentioned in what we just read, and there weren't any this time. Not that I noticed. That's bizarre. Honestly, he gave us a, a really long mixtape last time, and so to to help us out, he gave us no mixtape at all. Are there just no songs about werewolves? I. You know what? I bet this is where that strong editor that you mentioned came in, because I'm sure I don't know when Werewolves of London came out. I can't remember <laughs> off the top of my head, but it's going like, to be around the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Steve would have been incapable of uh, dropping some sort of uh, reference in there. So I'm sure someone someone was looking at it and was like, Steve, you're working on. Yeah. 1977. So it's out um, at, by mm-hmm. this point. Right. Yep. Um, so. Yeah, like turns out song titles are song titles and lyrics are words that you don't need when you're trying to write what was supposed to be a calendar. Yep. I mean, maybe that makes sense. Maybe. Um, OK. All right. Well, that's that's kind of the, the whole main episode. And now just to uh, catch up with with you all, all you folks out there listening, uh, we're going to turn our eye to the question sewer, uh, which is where you can write in. We, we've we've not done this on a mainline episode before. We did a kind of sewer special initially this past summer. Um, where it was all just Q&A. But on shorter episodes like this, we will probably peek into the question sewer and see what folks have for us. So uh, we can get started if you like, Cameron. Please. Okay. Well, I've taken all of the questions that we had in the sewer. If you want to write in, uh, just so you know, you can reach us at thequestionsewer at gmail.com. No periods or anything between those words, just the entire phrase, thequestionsewer at gmail.com. If you sign off your email, I will read your name as you have signed it. Uh, Otherwise, I will just, you know, refer to you as listener because sometimes I don't know uh, what are sort of like, you know, preferred names or anything like that. So, Uh, I've broken up these questions into some kind of subgroups, uh, and the first group of questions is uh, the Bob Dylan questions. Let's get going. 
Right. <laughs> uh, Paul writes in to point out that the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill from Creepshow appears to be titled after uh, the Bob Dylan song, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, uh, which was about a real life racially motivated murder in the 60s. Uh, Paul asks us if this is messed up or what. Yep, it's pretty messed up. Yeah, it's pretty messed up. Uh, Dan writes in, obviously, with Uncle Stevie's mixtape, we get a decent look into uh, both of your musical tastes, but only as it relates to what King liked enough to put in his books from uh, at the time of writing of this question, 1974 to 1982. What I'd like to ask is, what music are you fans of? What are your favorite artists and why the Bob Dylan hate? I will not be lured into this uh, question. Uh, because uh, they're there if I ever say what are my favorite artists right this is the opposite of what you're supposed to do on a podcast I refuse to yes and <laughs> I'm going to no but anything I say will be immediately compared to Bob Dylan it, which I have stated axiomatically Bob mm-hmm. Dylan is bad like this this is metaphysical this predates mm-hmm. human yeah, thought I, yeah Bob this Dylan is like a, isn't good uh, Miyasu has a whole chapter on this Yes. Uh, human finitude is the, bracketed by outside in the dead matter of the universe, the axiomatic physical truth. Bob Dylan is not good at making music. Um, and so, uh, you know, I guess I'll say my favorite artist is probably mm-hmm. the Wallflowers. Okay. Yeah. I am also not going to do anything to uh, unpack uh, my opinions on Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is Bob Dylan. Uh, we, we've established that. Uh my favorite artists are many and varied. Mm-hmm. I would say, honestly, there's probably a big overlap in like what I listen to and what like Stephen King listens to. Um, but I'm also a mm-hmm. I'm a child of like Napster, right? Like I learned music mm-hmm. through uh, just downloading things off of file sharing clients. And so I I just have all sorts of things that I'm interested in. And sometimes that aligns with Steve and sometimes it doesn't. Can we uh, can we play a little game here? Okay. Uh, I'm just going to just truly off the top of my head, just name artists. And I want you to give them uh, uh, one to five stars. Okay. Just their whole catalog. Okay. Whole catalog. All of it. I'm going to, for, for purposes of this game, I have listened to everything by these people. Yeah. Okay. Ready? Okay. Rolling Stones. Uh, three stars. Okay. Don't, you're thinking way too much already. You got it. Okay. You, okay. Pure okay. gut. Okay. The Killers. Three stars. Burial. Uh, four stars. Gorillas. Four stars. Linda Ronstadt. Five stars. Uh oh, oh god. Uh, Waylon Jennings. Uh, five stars. Garth Brooks. Four stars. Travis Tritt. Two stars. Um. What is the uh, what's the what's the young lady's name who uh, makes all the English music? Adele. (laughs) (laughs) Who makes all the English music? Yeah, I well, I worked myself there. Like this, uh, sometimes the show can really give people uh, a a, uh, some insight into how my brain works. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, Adele. It's just (laughs) it's just so funny because. Where my brain was going with that was Shirley Collins. 
Um, oh, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Cameron's going to ask me about Shirley Collins. No, mm-hmm. it's Adele. Uh, I think Adele's four stars. Uh, Wanda Jackson. Wanda Jackson, five stars. Mm, Madonna. Uh, four stars, actually. Ooh, four stars for Madonna. I mean, the uh, thing is, is like the Madonna songs that go real hard, go real hard. Mm-hmm. Boys to Men. Uh, I haven't listened to much Boys to Men, to be honest. The, the singles, I guess, are, are four stars. They're good enough that I know them. Motown Philly's back again. Don't know them. <laughs> well, that, no, that's that's nope. Don't know them. <laughs> All right, great, 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 great. I don't know okay, the Motown well, Phillies are back again. Well, now we know. Oh, now yeah. we know about uh, Michael's music opinions. You can now evaluate Michael's music yeah. opinions one to five stars. Uh, so the next series of questions are King Thing thoughts. So these are questions about like I don't know our, our opinions about sort of like potential speculative King merchandise or like uh, you know who who would you want to see make this type of movie and that sort of thing. Alex writes in, I spent much of the past year and a half listening to podcasts like Just King Things and putting together Lego sets to keep my mind occupied and my hands busy. Which Stephen King location or other possible related set idea would you like to uh, see or have on your shelf? I was thinking maybe a Christine that you could build into different levels of repair. Uh, Mine would be that gazebo that was special built for Frank Dodd to murder that girl in in the dead zone. Okay. Would it also have different levels of repair? Nope. Okay. It would look pristine as if it were just built, purpose built for Frank Dodd to murder someone in. <laughs> uh, I would want um, the entire Overlook Hotel. That's got to be a Lego set, right? I wish. Oh, um, let's look. I just can't imagine. Overlook Hotel. I'm, I, at the very Lego. least, I'm sure like a Lego enthusiast has made like a custom set. Wow. Yeah, it hasn't been made. That's just, uh, that's bewildering to me. Hmm. Anyway, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a layup. It's right there. It's free, Lego. Just do it. Yeah, it is. No, I want I want it, but it's, for me, it's got to be the version modeled after the Stanley Hotel, um, which mm-hmm. is closer to the one from the book, like Timberline yep. Lodge for the the Kubrick movie. That's fine, but that's not the Lego set I want. I want the the um, Stanley Lego set. Yep, that makes sense. Mick Garris approved, put a big stamp on it. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I have a little Mick Garris Lego guy. Okay, listen, listeners. <clears throat> I'm sure some one of you has to be one of these uh, like custom Lego guy creation people. And if you're not, I got a job for you. Mm-hmm. Or, or if you are, you have that job. But if you're not, you can become that kind of person and then do it. Uh, Michael and I will both pay you for a custom Mick Garris. Because that's the only way we're going to get him on the show. I, I it, just at this point, uh, the only way I'm going to get Mick Garris on the show is by Mick Garris, uh, being transmogrified into a uh, Lego, and then being on my desk because uh, my man will not respond to any messages from me. By the way, you should tweet at Mick Garris and tell him to be on the show. We need people constantly saying this. Because I'm, you know, I'm getting uh, totally blanked by uh, Mick Garris here. I don't know if there's a particular reason for it, um, but uh, he faves the tweets and then mm-hmm. won't respond. Mm-hmm. Tweets are being read, but not responded to. Not responded to. I don't know what's up with that. It feels like a personal insult. Mm-hmm. 
it's the rivalry we have with, uh, I think, the Dread Central podcast network that his show is on now. I don't know. I don't look. Dread Central acquire us. Yeah, here Dread, we are. Dread, uh, acquire this. We'll do it. <laughs> That's fine. Give us a bunch of money. We'll be on Dread Central. We're standing by the side of the road with signs that read, "We'll work for Dread Central." Yeah, I'll work for Dread Central. It's a, the, the Mick Garris podcast is great. If people aren't mm-hmm. listening to the Mick Garris podcast, you really should. It has a lot of great interviews on there. Mm-hmm. You, you learn a lot about filmmaking. Uh, the uh, Garris uh, is a very good interviewer. Garris is an extremely good interviewer. And uh, the I, I really enjoyed the... I don't know if you listen to this, Michael, because I know you kind of bounce in and out like I do. But I listened to the Ron Perlman episode from, I don't know, six months ago or so. That's, that was an episode... Yeah, it's it's worth checking out uh, mm. the because it's him talking about like, oh, he was supposed to be a superstar in the 80s uh, with um, not the quest for fire, but clan of the cave bear. Oh, right? yes. Oh, gosh. And, and then it just didn't happen. And so he started becoming like an art film guy. Mm-hmm. And that's where Ron Perlman kind of comes from as a as a as an actor. He was like a New York actor who was set for superstardom and the movie tanked. And then he started working in. Uh, foreign art films, and then kind of worked his way back up in in Hollywood through that angle. So it's it's a fascinating story to hear, and it's really interesting to hear him tell it. Uh, so that's all to say. Look, Mick, we l- we love your show. Just come get on our show. Come on, Mick. While. Come on, do it. Anyway, uh, uh, a listener writes in saying, "Hi, venerable Just King Things hosts. Thanks for the show. The question for the question sewer is: What King novel is best suited for Broadway adaptation, in your opinion? Maybe either out of the ones already covered, or out of all that you can remember well enough. I would say let's keep it. Well, no, actually, because I think my my recommendation for this is outside of what we've already covered. So I'm going to keep it open. What would you want to see on Broadway? N- none. Uh, yeah. a, a Broadway adaptation would inherently lessen." a Stephen Mm -hmm. King work. So, uh, none. Okay. Uh, I don't think you're incorrect necessarily. Also, I want to point out that there already are Stephen King musicals. I don't think any that have run on Broadway, they've all been, you know, sort of fringe or off Broadway shows, but the Carrie musical, I know for a fact is kind of a, a, a big deal. Um, there was like a weird, uh, Vogue, maybe about 10, 15 years ago, where it's like, what if we took an, uh, a, a horror movie from 20 years ago and made it into a, a sort of weird musical comedy. So they did that with Carrie and they also did that with the evil dead. Yeah, I remember the Evil Dead one and like listening. I, I I will be honest with you. I think that is the last time I have, in a condition that was not duress, listened to any kind of musical. Mm-hmm. I think it was probably that. I think I've probably <laughs> seen Hedwig and the Angry Inch in between now and then. So I guess I I've seen you know experienced it, and I I I was uh, forced to watch Hamilton. Mm. But beyond that, I think that's it. Mm-hmm. I just don't like singing. I don't like it. Yeah. I, 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 it makes me uncomfortable. I don't like musicals either as a general rule. This is, of course, uh, a huge stereotype. If you know anything about people who study theater like I do, that there are people like you, like the 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 group of theater studies people will uh, sometimes divide into basically people who do uh, musicals versus all other types of stage play. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I'm an all other types of stage play sort of person, but there's plenty of overlap. There are plenty of people who like both of them. I'm just I'm I'm not big on musicals. However, however, if you gave me the money and the resources, I think there could be a very interesting Broadway version of the Tommy Knockers. I think that would be a lot of fun. I believe you. <laughs> 
That's all I have uh, to say about it. Okay. Uh, Nate, uh, who actually asked two questions, um, but I they were they're going to show up in sort of different parts, and I mm-hmm. have decided to answer them in reverse order. Nate asks, uh, in the Creepshow episode, we talk about Bernie Wrightson being good at adapting King, uh, taking kind of a script and sort of, you know, winnowing it down into this comic that still feels Kingy. Um, so then Nate asks, so who are the writers uh, behind your favorite King adaptations and who are your favorite adapters of King material? I can dig on William Goldman, who did uh, Misery, Dreamcatcher, and Hearts in Atlantis, or Frank Darabont, who of course did The Green Mile, Shawshank, The Mist. Um, but maybe there's some talent under the hood of the Mangler or Firestarter or Children of the Corn. So who do we who do we think does really good King adaptations? I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that. I mean, Mick Garris, right? But that, the trickiness of it is that Mick Garris really isn't adapting Stephen King. He's just kind of doing what Stephen King has presented. You know, <laughs> he channels he, him. He, he does, you know, and, and is very explicit about that. Right. He, he's not trying to get away from what Steve is doing. I, I mean, I would say probably if, if we're talking about just the the things that have lasted longest, uh, probably stand. Oh, this is this is they're coming to get me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the the things that kind of stand the test of time as Stephen King adaptations, the best probably is the Dino De Laurentiis Entertainment Group. <laughs> um, you know, all of these works that we've been looking at recently, you know, Firestarter, Cat's Eye, Maximum Overdrive, and then uh, Silver Bullet that we're going to be talking about here. That's a lot of King really quickly, and we'll talk about that. I've actually got some really cool information about that for the bonus episode. But I think that probably Dino De Laurentiis as a producer, you know, as someone who is, like, orchestrating Stephen King adaptations and uh, filming Stephen King scripts, I think he might be my my call, and mm-hmm. it might even be more specifically um, uh, Martha De Laurentiis, Nay Schumacher, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, who who is uh, even more faithful to it, but or or, or maybe more talented about it. But uh, Dino was kind of over the whole thing, and so so maybe that's what I'll say. Do you, mm-hmm. uh, I'll take a uh, I'll take a. Uh, genius of the machine style turn here to say it's actually not directors that probably are doing the best job here. It might be producers, you mm-hmm. know, the, uh, um, uh, Dino De Laurentiis is our Selznick of the 1980s. <laughs> uh, I, I would agree. I think there's something interesting. So the the Dino, uh, the De Laurentiis films are often seen as, you know, essentially schlock. And, and I guess, you know, for a given definition, they are. Uh, and at the same time, I think that the De Laurentiis pictures are instrumental in getting Stephen King into the public consciousness in a way that I do not think would have happened if he had remained just primarily a guy who wrote books, right? If those books did not get made into films and if uh, De Laurentiis and kind of his entire crew did not have, I think, some sort of eye for what is it about these stories that will play well on a a cinema screen, um, I think Stephen King would be a very different figure today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the other person I think that is worth mentioning here, because I think we would certainly get questions about it eventually uh, if we didn't bring it up, is Mike Flanagan, hmm. uh, who did uh, the Gerald's Game adaptation for Netflix, um, uh, uh, 
did Doctor Sleep, which we'll talk about on a future bonus episode, and uh, most recently for Netflix did the series Midnight Mass, which is uh, him kind of doing. It's not Stephen King fan fiction exactly, but if you if you have not watched Midnight Mass, um, you can see elements of various Stephen King stories kind of getting filtered in through the story that uh, Flanagan wants to take, in particular Salem's Lot and Storm of the Century, mm-hmm. um, and then also the the he also the. Uh, Flanagan also did the Haunting of series for Netflix. So the Haunting of Hill House, that was a big, weird uh, uh, sort of, you know, Brian Fuller-esque adaptation of Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House, but then also the Haunting of Bly Manor, which does the same thing to uh, Henry James's uh, novella, The Turn of the Screw. Um, There is a thing that happens in Bly Manor that is like some of the most Stephen King bullshit uh, that it's like you can I can feel like the Stephen King influences in all of this other stuff that Flanagan has done. And I think uh, he is not my favorite uh, King adapter, um, but a lot of people sort of remark upon him as being good at it. And I think one of the reasons he is good at it is actually, weirdly enough, one of the reasons Frank Darabont is good at it, which is to say... (laughs) Yes. Darabont and Flanagan both have the same or or if not the precise same, right? The the same genus of sentimentality that Stephen King does. Yes. Uh, uh, sort of like, uh, I want to tell you a scary story, but then it's also going to be really sad, right? We're going to have lots of sad feelings about sad children and sad families. Uh, and I'm not saying that to like uh, poo-poo any of this, right? I am, I am just sort of making a kind of like, uh, uh, like, a claim about here is what links these guys, right? Mm -hmm. These guys work together really well because they have a similar type of sentimentality. They make melodramas. Mm -hmm. Both Mike Flanagan, you know, my, my Mike Flanagan bench is not super deep. I didn't watch the haunting of, or, uh, midnight mass, but, but I've seen the Stephen King stuff at this point. And, uh, I, I, I've seen all of the Darabont and they're just, they make melodramas. They make Mm -hmm. melodramas that, uh, are not targeted exclusively to women. Yes. And, uh, that, and that is what Stephen King is doing for the most part, right? When we talk about this kind of nostalgic air of something like stand by me or, or the body, um, and the way that Stephen King kind of treats the, like almost, you know, the edges of the, um, the normal and the supernatural, right? That is the same impulse that makes like, someone's evil twin on a soap opera work right mm-hmm. they like show up and they have a mustache and they're the evil twin you're like well, I, well god damn it the evil twin is here mm-hmm. right that is the same thing that stephen king does and it produces all of these um uh you know frameworks of really programmatic emotion and again i'm not saying that to, that i don't mean any of that in a negative way that's just a, a, a big part of um 20th and 21st century uh uh, media, right? I mean, mm-hmm. melodrama is a critical portion of what we're doing uh, when we make mass media. Uh, you know, we are making things that have very clear touch points of how you are supposed to emote with them mm-hmm. um, and how they are supposed to draw emotion out of you. And Stephen King is really good at it. Uh, mm-hmm. And Frank Darabont is really good at pulling that out of Stephen King. And I think you're right that Mike Flanagan is very talented at pulling that out of Steve as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next- Which is uh, what one one little additional thing. Uh, this is why I think that Castle Rock, the like Stephen Kingy Fargo thing, it's like just oh, a bunch yeah. of Stephen King melange. Um, the I think that's why it doesn't work very well, and why mm-hmm. and why people are generally pretty cold on it is it is not melodramatic. It is I don't know heightened. It's it's doing some other set of emotions, but it is distinctly not in this 
uh, melodrama form. And I think that's why a lot of people were cold on it and, and didn't really think that it felt like Stephen King is mm-hmm. it's got all the formal pieces, but not the kind of heart mm-hmm. um, of like, uh, we're the, we're so simple, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's one of the things that Mick Garris says again and again on his podcast, mm-hmm. right? When, whenever Stephen King comes up basically uh, is that the thing that Garris likes about Stephen King is that at the end of the day, you care about those characters um, rather than, I mean, in addition to the situations that they're in, right? The, the situations mm-hmm. that they're in, and when we talk about melodrama here, right? Um, there's some way in which like the supernatural elements of a Stephen King story uh, are helpful for that emotive process because they allow you to pull the character's psychology out of their heads and literalize it in like the story world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, I watched like, I think the first, the pilot episode of that castle rock show Mm -hmm. and it it was, it was cold in a way that Stephen King when when he's working is not cold. There's a, a, an emotional warmth to him. Yeah. The, um, yeah, that's interesting. You know, I bought all the Blu-rays for it, so I'm ready whenever (laughs) we watch it. And I'm presumably we will watch, you know, as we go further in the Stephen King, uh, canon when direct adaptations kind of fall off, Mm -hmm. um, we will, we will uh, have time to check those out at various different times. But, uh, yeah, I think, uh, unfortunately, I think that some of the actors were prepared to do that. I really liked Andre Holland. I had to look the Mm -hmm. name up. Um, I really liked him as the kind of lead role there in that show. And, uh, it's kind of unfortunate. I haven't really seen him anywhere else, but, uh, he was really, really good and was able to sell that, but just, you know, the production itself was not doing it, but not to be too sidetracked on that. Uh, what's, uh, what's our, our next one here? Uh, so the next set of questions are about books and this is, uh, Nate's first question, but I'm reading it second. Um, going over how we know that Stephen King is a reader and how, uh, you know, I, I've done this, uh, you've done this in previous episodes, pointing out that, for instance, in The Stand, uh, we get all these references to Lord of the Rings and, and Watership Down. Um, and, you know, uh, Nate points out that Stu spends more pages thinking about Watership Down and the idea of going Tharn from that book than he does thinking about his dead wife. Mm hmm. Which is true, right? I, it's 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 easy to forget that Stu Redman had a, like a wife who who died before the book begins and just never gets thought about again. It's it's I don't know. It's weird, um, uh, especially when he thinks so much about Watership Down. Anyway, um, you know, and I've pointed out like the Ray Bradbury references and things like that. Uh, so uh, Nate eventually asks. <clears throat> uh, Nate also gestures forward to some stories that we haven't read yet, um, particularly the man in the black suit from everything's eventual, which, uh, Nate connects with, uh, uh, Hawthorne's young Goodman Brown, write These stories about going out into the woods to meet the devil. Um, and finally it just asks, so why is this King giving us a reading list? Is it a writer saying, here's how somebody else wrote this kind of story. And here's how I do it differently. Uh, I'm too lazy to read King interviews where he might talk about this, but I figure you might not be. And, uh, binging King might give you some insight. Yeah. So what is, what is Steve doing when he, uh, invokes these other prior novels and stories and and things like that? What is he up to generally? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right like i think uh, uh, i mean look here the real answer is that uh all work is in conversation with previous work right mm-hmm. you know not not to be uh all anxiety of influence on this thing right but there, there is no um 
thing that just emerges full fully uh, from the imagination of one single human being right like we're material creatures that live in material worlds and we are influenced and pushed in different directions by thousands of material forces i think that if you are someone who is bookish and enjoys reading and uh, you know as we've talked about stephen king is a big reader in a general sense um i think that that stuff starts rubbing off on you the the so and and that happens to everybody right Mm -hmm. the thing that i think maybe makes stephen king unique here is that stephen king seems to have no problem just fully ripping things off um (laughs) and writing basically his own uh derivative novel from uh you know big influences We, we talked about the in the uh Different Seasons episode, we talked about the controversy of him just stealing his friend's story, um, you know, mm-hmm. according to his friend, you know, allegedly. Um, uh, but, you know, there is a plagiarism uh, question around the body and, uh, you know, where that came from. And I, I fully believe that, like, Stephen King, there's no ill will there. I don't think he, like, read that and, you know, thought, oh, oh, oh I, I'm going to have to rip that off. I just think that he is someone who see has story ideas or sees story ideas and thinks oh well what would happen if blah 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 and just kind of spins off from there this is part of genre literature right this is the mm-hmm. folklore tradition and this is you know re- read some science fiction or some fantasy writing but well, harder to read the fantasy writing i guess in the sense of there's less of it um but but look at the science fiction cultures or the horror cultures between the 1930s and the 1980s and you you see this this kind of constant difference and repetition that's going mm-hmm. on around uh what, you know what what's in the genre and what's there you know very famously in the 1940s and the 1950s you could be a science fiction writer who just took the same like five or six concepts and jumbled them up over and over and over again and just reproduce stories you know this is uh, why lots of figures from that time period have quote unquote juvenilia, mm-hmm. uh, which are just this kind of recombinant story. Or, you know, look at uh, Philip K. Dick's work and how he just wrote the same book over and over again many times. <laughs> um, it, this is in some ways this idea of taking other stories and recycling them into new forms that are um, slightly different. It, it is part of the market logic. Mm-hmm. of uh the genre as well right so when you get the folklore tradition or the fan tradition and you get the economic incentive running into one another this is what you get you get stephen king mm-hmm. um so you know he's a, he is a, a a product of his uh environment i would say and his particular kind of social location mm-hmm. <clears throat> Another listener writes in, and this is sort of related to, to what we were just talking about. Uh, occasionally, the podcast will bring up the bourgeois novel as a genre that Stephen King sometimes pulls from. I've kind of got the gist now from how you talk about it that it has something to do with ensemble casts. But what is the bourgeois novel? Are they novels about the bourgeoisie like Balzac's? Uh, and just to answer like quickly, mm-hmm. sort of, yes, like you, you have yeah. you have done most of the work. <laughs> Yeah, that the yeah, I would also say sort of yes. I mean, yeah, that when 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 I say the bourgeois novel, what I mean is the novel that is concerned about the kind of social apparatus of the bourgeoisie and and kind of uh, elevates to the level of existential crisis uh, the management of social class. So uh, think here about how in Salem's Lot, there's a lot of words spent. Uh, on determining if what was her name susan in that mm-hmm. in that novel uh, susan uh, yeah the love interest yeah so su- whether or not susan's parents like ben mm-hmm. right and that is like 
so much of that, that the first third of that novel, right, is like, oh, they go to that barbecue and like, do they like each other? And like, is it possible for them to date one another? She's a little bit too young. He has he was divorced or his wife died. He's not divorced. Uh, his wife died and it was his fault. Like the 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 social machinery about like what is acceptable or what is not acceptable within a particular social class. That's the bourgeois novel. I mean, you can look up. I think the term that this. And I've used this term too, but I think the term that's mostly runs around in is as quote unquote, the novel of manners. So you mm-hmm. can like, if you want to learn more about it, look up the novel of manners and you, you get the idea. I think Balzac does end up kind of counting in that thing, but you know, I would say even more Stephen King is, is attached to, uh, like the John Updikean kind of tradition or extension of that, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. of like what, what happens when middle America is at the center of this type of novel, even though the bourgeois novel as a concept emerges out of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only thing that I would add is that um, some from historical perspective, <clears throat> the novel gets talked about as a genre that is uh, particularly of like kind of the middle class or of the bourgeoisie uh, prior to novels being uh, widely circulated and read, which of course relies on things like uh, literacy rates within a general population. Uh, what does your printing technology look like? What are sort of the materials available for making books and things like that? Um, so prior to the advent of the printing press and uh, the rise in literacy rates, uh, we have things like the public theater or uh, Uh, like, you know, poetry that is often read aloud uh, rather than circulated and read by individual readers. And uh, sort of these classical genres are primarily and and sort of historically uh, supposed to be quote unquote about. And this is like when when we read like Aristotle on tragedy, right, in the poetics, um, tragedy as a genre is supposed to be about the affairs of kings, or important personages within their particular like city states. Um, so there's like in uh, like sort of the, the Western tradition, right? Uh, there is a long history of like, who is literature supposed to be about? What is the appropriate sort of subject for the literary genre? Um, and the novel becomes a fixture in uh, the Anglophone market, uh, especially, um, but along with like, you know, the, the, the French market and things like that, uh, with the rise of the middle class, with the rise of uh people who are not part of the old aristocracy. Uh, and so, you know, what what do you do when all of these sort of old genres are supposed to be about aristocratic characters? Uh, will you get these novels of manners that are about like, well, you know, maybe I'm not making decisions about what to do with the remains of my brother that have been uh, left for the birds outside the city walls. What if that gets, uh, all of that drama gets transposed to things like, are my parents going to approve of my boyfriend? Right. Well, what is what is kind of like my future socially? Uh, what happens when we have a happy marriage that is suddenly riven by infidelity? Uh, what are sort of like the social consequences of that? How does that ripple out into a, a kind of like middle class ecology and, and so on and so forth? So when we talk about the bourgeois novel, um, yeah, it's it's stories about uh, so it. it in, in one way, right, it's where it's what we're doing as a shorthand for like the Kingian realism, right? The realist elements uh, that he then adds his his werewolves and vampires to. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, right, being like, you know, the the dead zone is another good example. What if we had a love affair that got cut short, but then had a chance to renew it later? And what is sort of like the psychological impact of that on on both of us? Yep. 
Um, which has nothing to do with the psychic power story right. that's being told. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, then the, the final question is just kind of a how-to question. Uh, Quentin writes in and says, I know you do a lot of reading between your jobs and podcasts, and I was curious about your reading habits. Uh, do you have times carved out specifically for reading or find places to fit it in? I'm sure you have multiple things that need to be read uh, all at the same time. Do you prefer to make one a focus and then get through it faster or juggle them around a little more than that? Do you like background music while reading just anything about your reading process i would love to know thanks i have no information to share on this i i just read the books mm-hmm. <laughs> right i don't <laughs> i don't i don't carve out particular time to read i don't uh uh unless there's like something that we're under the gun for you know sometimes mm-hmm. our scheduling gets a little bit weird i mean you know something that that i will say maybe this is the way to answer this question is that you know, I don't know what people's perception of our lives are. You know, that's pretty opaque to me. But you know, we both have full-time jobs, mm-hmm. right? Like, we both have, like, straight up, you know, whatever, 40, 50-hour-a-week other commitments in our lives that are not podcasting. And so, like, yeah, any time that I'm reading is, is uh, you know, time that I found to fit it in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, this is all a thing, um, and I'm very successful or, or very happy with how successful we've been, you know, on Patreon, uh, and, and on, uh, you know, the podcast in general, I'm so glad that people uh, listen to it. And I'm also glad that they pay us money for it. Um, but it's, it's buying time, you know, I, the, the, the more to speak very pragmatically, the more money that comes in the Patreon, the more time I can justify spending on the things for the shows. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I fit it in, uh, you know, organically and I tend to read whatever's next up on the recording because we, we got to be pretty pragmatic as far as that's concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I, I, and also due to the nature of the discussion, right. It's like, uh, and you run into this sometimes, right. Where you have to like go back and refresh your, yourself because you sometimes read things more quickly than I do, but I'm generally, whatever the recording is, I'm reading that for the five days in front of it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I, I, I'm doing it. And with the longer, say, Stephen King works, obviously that changes a bit. But I tend to read whatever is directly in front of us, and that keeps me fresh for talking about it and kind of prepared and ready to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, sort of similarly, I am always reading and I am always reading things that are relevant to something that I'm going to be writing or recording in the fairly immediate future. Um, there are times where like my schedule clears up and I like read something kind of out of interest for it, especially if it's like shorter or something. Uh, but, uh, my general strategy is, uh, Knowing what my week is going to look like, more or less, for the next several weeks and finding the places where, for instance, um, I have a commute where I am on a train and I go into Boston. Um, And so that happens, you know, a couple times a week. And so I think like, okay, on the commute, uh, I am going to read this thing. The other thing that I do a lot uh, is I have a whiteboard in my office where I list everything that I'm supposed to be like reading at that point. Uh, And usually I'll have it like broken, like for instance, for the Homestuck show, um, I have like the, the number of pages that that's going to be. And I sort of 
every day or every couple days, I sort of look at what I have yet to read. And I think like, okay, over the next couple days, when does this slot in? When am I going to have time to read this thing? And sometimes I'm not just reading. Sometimes when I'm on that commute, I'm, you know, doing uh, teaching prep or something like that or grading. Um, But it is really all about me figuring out where are the pockets of time in my day where I get to structure how things happen. And then what do I do with those things. I don't listen to uh, music or anything while reading. I find that very distracting for the most part. Um, I just I just read. Uh, I had a lot of practice reading in cars when I was a kid, I guess. I know some people get motion sick when they're reading while traveling, but I just I don't know. I just I I know what I have to read and I try to get it read. Yeah, similar. I, I, I cannot actually read while in motion anymore. Um, I lost that at some point in my life, so uh, you know, unfortunate. I, I will say, you know, talking about practices or whatever, I don't know about you, but I don't do any audio book or, um, anything like that, um, reading and, uh, which I know a lot of people use, uh, for various different reasons, right? Uh, sometimes they have uh, better processing that way. They retain it better or it just fits into their life or whatever. Um, I don't do any of that because I read way, 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 way faster than a, a, someone will talk. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think part of like the my capability of doing this is I just read very quickly and have a high level of uh, information retaining. And that's because I got a PhD. Um, you know, I, I received a lot of disciplinary training and had to do that. Yeah. Um, now, I might not remember it six months from now, uh, <laughs> and I might not remember the names of anyone involved, but <laughs> the uh, broad strokes of the thing, I'm, I'm pretty good at retaining. Um, and, you know, if you ask me to sit down and, you know, test wise, write out what happened in Cycle of the Werewolf, I could probably get pretty close. Um, in two weeks, I probably wouldn't be able to do that. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've got pretty good um, high level r- retaining, which which means that I can read close to the show and then do the show um, with a high level of accuracy. And then but, you know, uh, mm-hmm. w- w- if you ask me it, the order of operations in the dead zone, I don't know if I could if I could get you there at this point. Mm hmm. I'm very similar. I I've listened to audiobooks, but the only time I was really regularly using audiobooks was when I was doing a lot of driving myself. And so I would drive from one place to another. And this was in grad school. So I had things I needed to be reading. So I would get audiobooks and listen to them on my uh, longer drives. Um, But similar to you, my uh, retention is much, much better with things that I read myself. And I read much faster than an audiobook uh, narrates something to me generally. So that's yeah. And and again, that's disciplinary training. (laughs) Like I've spent 10 years of my life uh, like having to read at a good clip in order to do my work. So the machine makes you. It does. Cool. Well, we are Range Touch. Uh, You can find out more about us and what we do at rangetouch.com. We do all sorts of shows like Homestuck Made This World that I just mentioned, where we're reading through the webcomic Homestuck and talking about it. We also have Game Study Study Buddies, where we read books of academic game studies and uh, try to make them accessible to uh, a broad audience, just like uh, Just King Things. You do not have to read along with any of these shows. One of our goals is to be uh, something that someone can listen to uh, as kind of a taster or is kind of an intro to whatever subject it is we are talking about. Um, so if you know someone, for instance, who uh, is maybe holding off because they think they may need to read along with us on all of these uh, Stephen King books, uh, you can tell them, no, these these people make shows that you can just listen to. In fact, uh, with this show 
in particular, uh, we often will tell you whether or not it's worth reading something <laughs> uh, uh, by the end. Um, if you want to read Cycle the Werewolf, that's fine, actually, because it's short. It's not going to cost you a lot. Um, but, uh, you know, tell people about us if you like. That's one way you can help us. The other ways you can help us include uh, going to Patreon.com and giving us some financial support. This would give you access to all sorts of cool bonus content. Uh, most relevant for Just King Things is the $5 a month tier where we uh, have the Just King Things bonus sodes. This month, we will be talking about the film adaptation of Cycle of the Werewolf, uh, Silver Bullets, starring Corey Haim and Gary Busey. Um, so that should be a fun time. Uh, we also get the entire uh, archive for that. Uh, this month also, we just announced some new tiers uh, that I don't remember the names of or the specifics of. Uh, the we haven't named them yet, oh, so okay. that's not not on your fault. Uh, not not your fault. Uh, the uh, yeah, we are introducing two new cheers. The first one is for uh, the Homestuck bonus episode. So if you're interested in getting more bonus episodes uh, for that, if you listen to that show, or if you just want to hear us talk about an increasingly weird range of things that have you know, the, if you just want to hear that, we're going to be doing um, uh, Con Air, uh, the Never Ending Story, Undertale, that kind of thing. So if you want to hear us talk about those. Uh, Big wild uh, objects. That, that that's going to be the place to do that, and that's going to be at ten dollars a month. And uh, by the time that you are listening to this, uh, let me look at a calendar really quickly. Whenever you're listening to this, uh, we will have just done our first live show. Uh, that's at a Patreon tier of twenty dollars a month. Basically, we're going to hang out in Discord and watch some. I don't know, documentaries or just like odd things we find on the internet. And then we'll do a little bit of live Q&A uh, and uh, just chatting. So if, if you want the experience of the question sewer, but you want it live and you want to get a little bit of FaceTime with us and chat, that kind of thing, um, we'll be doing that through Discord and that will happen at $20 a month. So that should be very exciting and uh, I'm interested to see how that works. So if you're like a super fan and you really want to make sure that uh, uh, that that uh, Range Touch is getting the support that you want to give us, well, this is a really cool way of doing that. So, um, yeah. And we'll talk about basically all of this uh, at various points, as well as announcing when new episodes of things have dropped. Uh, on our Twitter, twitter.com slash range touch. You can give that a follow and get all of the updates as new things happen, uh, as well as seeing whenever we come up with like fun or silly things to tweet. Uh, very often, uh, the range touch account is where I will put like pictures I've taken of extremely strange lines in the Stephen King book that we've just read, for instance. Uh, so if you want some of that additional content, that's where you will find it. Um, the other thing that really helps in addition to letting people know about us just in general is to review us on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, that really does help. It, it uh, helps like the, 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 eyeless algorithms that structure all of our daily activities uh, know that we are something that needs to be structured more, uh, namely pushed into more people's faces. So leave us those reviews. Uh, tell us how how much you like this show and tell other people how much you like this show. Um, am I forgetting anything, Cameron? I don't think so. Well, uh, the one thing that I have to say then is next month we will be back with another King book. Next time we will be discussing 1983's 
Pet Cemetery, another iconic King classic, and frankly, one that I've been looking forward to revisiting uh, for quite a while. I think probably since about the time we started this show. Um, so I'm very interested in seeing like how this book works for me now versus when it did when I was like a, a teenager or whatever. I mean, I've reread this book in like the past five years and it was still rad. So I'm awesome. looking forward to, uh, you know, I, I think the Just King Things method is going to be interesting to apply to it. I think we're going to see some interesting new things here. Um, but yeah, we'll find out. Yeah. Well, Cameron, then uh, as we as we close things up here, do you want to remind everyone out there in listener land of why it is we're up to what we're doing? Well, we do it uh, for the world, but we also do it for Steven. <laughs>